exciting to be here with you and to be able to open the word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 in a moment here. But I want to begin with a story of my childhood. Like most children growing up, my favorite time of the year was by far um, summer, Um, specifically summer vacation. It was a wonderful three-month period of no homework, uh, beautiful sunshine and warmth, playing outside with friends into the late hours of the evening, exploring the boundaries of our neighborhood and town in which you live. And and did I already say no homework or school? Um, For a child, summer break is is the best. you guys agree? Yeah, I love summer break. Now, as a boy growing up, one of the most significant and revolutionary milestones in my life was was learning how to ride a bike. Before I learned to ride ride a bike as a child... um, your world is pretty much confined to a small radius of where you live. And, but once you learn to ride a bike, and once I learned to ride a bike, it seemed like the, the world and the travel possibilities were endless. Now, of course, my parents had restrictions um, as far as how far I could go in my early bike days. But once I hit about 12, um, I pretty much could go wherever I wanted to, or at least they didn't really know. Um, So my bike in the summer was my ticket uh, to new neighborhoods, new playgrounds, new trails and and fishing ponds to explore. Uh, Man, oh man, were those the days. I loved those those summer days, traveling around uh, on my one-speed BMX bike. Now, nearly every summer morning, my routine was was thus. I would get up, grab a quick breakfast, and hop on my bike and travel to a friend's house or a playground to begin my day. Now, one day, um, I was at my favorite park. It's called Parmalee Park. Um, the reason I liked it is because they had the nicest basketball courts in the area. So my buddies and I would play basketball for hours on end. Now, I don't know the exact distance it was to Parmalee Park, um, but I did know how long it took to travel on my bike. Six minutes flat. For fun, I would often use my stopwatch um, to time how long it took me to get to a place and I would seek to beat it the next time out. So at six minutes it must have been close to about two miles away, um, probably a little less, but I was a pretty fast biker, you know. Um, so here I was at Parmalee Park. I was balling with some buddies, some basketball, uh, when I went up for a layup. And after about a few seconds, I, I came down, I began to come down, and uh, with all my weight, I landed on the side of my ankle. I had badly sprained uh, my ankle, and I found myself on the ground, just in intense pain. Uh, It it hurt so bad, I was beginning to cry. And so at that moment, I realized that all my buddies were surrounding me to see if I was okay. And immediately, I recognized I was just about ready to break cardinal rule number one um, of manly decorum on the streets. Never cry in front of your friends. And so I had to get out of there, and I had to get out of there pretty fast, or else they would see me crying, and I couldn't have that happen. So after faking with my buddies that I was okay, I hopped onto my bike, literally, and I took off. Uh, Right away, I realized I had a pretty big problem. Uh, My ankle was so badly sprained that I was unable to put any weight on it, and thus I was only able to pedal on one leg. So my attempt to hightail it out of there was failed pretty miserably. And so I don't know... If you've ever tried to ride a bike with one leg, uh, but let me tell you, it's quite difficult, and um, it's much slower than normally if you'd have two functioning legs. So essentially, I was able to push down well on on one leg, 
on half of the 360-degree turn, but then I needed to use that same leg to kind of pull the, the pedal up and around and then be able to push back again. It wasn't very efficient at all. It was not easy. So as you can imagine, my journey took much longer uh, than my fasted, fastest recorded time of six minutes. Um, I didn't record my time home that day, but um, it felt like an eternity. Um, so I labored home on one leg and came to realize um, a very important biking principle. Two functioning legs are required to, wi- to ride a bike efficiently. It's pretty obvious, but uh, I really realized it that day. When it comes to the spiritual nurture of our children to know the Lord, God has ordained two important institutions in a young person's life to disciple them in the faith. Parents and a local church. Like the pedals of a bike, parents um, and the local church body have been designed by God to partner together, to work together in the shaping of our children for the Lord. So when working together in tandem, parents and a local body of believers are used by God um, to have a great impact in helping our children grow in the faith. But sadly, I think all too often, there's a breakdown in this partnership that God has designed And like riding a bike with one leg, there can be a significant decrease in its effectiveness. Unfortunately, this has been increasingly been the case for many Christian homes this past generation. Just like when a parent takes their child to music lessons or drops them off at soccer practice to become skilled in in either singing or sports, parents have, many unknowingly and with the best intentions, have passed on the spiritual discipleship of their children to the church namely the youth pastor. In effect, creating a dynamic of riding a bike with one leg, woefully ineffective and not the way God intended it to be. As we will see in Deuteronomy 6 this morning, God has given parents the primary responsibility uh, for the discipleship of their children. And alongside parents, he has commissioned um, the church to partner with them and to come alongside parents in the spiritual nurture of their child's faith. In looking at Deuteronomy 6 this morning, we will, be, we, will see, um, primarily, we will be primarily looking at parents' role. Yet, it would be a travesty this morning to believe that simply because our children are out of our homes, maybe some of you have children that have grown up and are out of your homes, it would be a travesty to think that simply because we don't have children at our homes that, that we don't have a responsibility or something to learn from Deuteronomy 6. Psalm 145, verse 4 says this, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What we see in this verse is that it is the biblical duty of every generation of Christians, old and young, to pass on to the next generation the mighty acts of God. It is not God's way to to drop a Bible from heaven on every generation that comes along. God intends that an older generation will teach the younger generation to know, to obey, and to rejoice in his holy word. So so as we look at Deuteronomy 6 this morning, whether you're 17 years old or or 70 years old, God calls each generation um, to pass on the Christian faith to the next. So each of us this morning, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and even the youngest generation here, our youth, need to understand and take seriously the God-ordained commission of commending the Christian faith to the next generation. The principles of Deuteronomy 6 that we will examine today are applicable to every generation here 
and not just simply for parents. For they take seriously God's command to teach his mighty acts of salvation to the next generation. So before we look specifically at Deuteronomy 6, I want to um, look at the setting this morning. Before, um, let me offer a few words of introduction, kind of setting up the book of Deuteronomy. As a whole, the book of Deuteronomy offers us wonderful instruction for implementing family discipleship. Uh, the book is composed of the last three addresses, addresses that Moses made to Israel as they stood at the edge of the Jordan River before they were enter, the, enter into the promised land. If you recall, um, an entire rebellious generation uh, had died in the wilderness at Kadesh. And Moses himself was prohibited to enter the promised land by God. So essentially the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell words, his last three addresses to the people whom he loved and he shepherded and pastored for 40 plus years. So as you can imagine, Moses deeply desired to impress upon his people the need to love the Lord with their entire being and to keep his commands a central part of their lives. And that's what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 6. So if you haven't already, um, please pull out a Bible or a Bible there in a pew rack to Deuteronomy 6 as we uh, will examine this text this morning. We're going to read the entire chapter, Deuteronomy 6, 1, 1 through 25. Let's hear the word of the Lord. These commands, decree, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life here, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities, you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then you will eat and are satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did in Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised an oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all of your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future... 
When your son asks or daughter asks, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on, our, on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we may always prosper and be kept alive as this, this case today. And if we are careful to obey all his law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. We pray with me. Lord, thank you for your holy word this morning as we heard from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I pray now that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear um, you speak to us by your spirit that we may know what it is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by looking closely at verses 4 and 5 specifically. As I share, um, this, these verses form what is the, the Israelites call the Shema, um, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, devout Jews, um, even today, recite this passage twice a day, morning and night. These verses of the Shema, what they do is they describe the type of relationship God desired and he designed to have with his people. Um, It's a covenant relationship, which we will examine later. Even Jesus himself cited this passage as the, the, the greatest and most important commandment in all of Scripture. So let's look closer at the text. In verse 4, we see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Moses um, here is making a statement about the nature and the uniqueness of God in comparison with the gods of Canaan. He says, Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone, he says. Now Moses' concern here. Um, is whether or not God's people would remain devoted exclusively to Yahweh or they would be seduced by the gods of Canaan. So he reminds the Israelites and us that Yahweh alone is our God. That Yahweh alone is the one and only true God. He is incomparable, he's utterly unique, and he's the one true God. That's Moses' desire here in verse 4. So in verse 5, we see the type of relationship that we are to have with Yahweh our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Moses reminds us here in verse 5 that, that love, wholehearted love, is to be the fountain and the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. We are to love God with our whole being, being fully devoted to him, um, with all of who we are. Essentially, God desires nothing less than complete and intimate loyalty with his people. For he knows that that we'll never be satisfied apart from him. God created us to be in relationship with him and we'll never um, find satisfaction and peace unless we cherish him supremely. Moses goes on in verse 6 and says, These commandments are to be upon your hearts. In our culture, we often uh, think of the heart and simply in terms of our emotions or our feelings. Um, So, for example, when we say we love someone, um, we're saying we... You know, we, we feel love towards someone or we feel it with our emotions. Um, in contrast, in the biblical times, the heart is better understood as really as to what we would call the mind today, uh, the place of our thoughts, 
Uh, one commentator says, The heart was the organ of the will. It was where you make, is where you make your decisions and your choices. So when Moses says here that these commands are to be upon your hearts, he's referring to God's commands filling our minds and our thoughts. Another commentator writes, To be upon the heart is to be in one's constant conscious reflection. So according to the Shema here in verses 4 and 5, a love for God is characterized uh, by complete devotion, um, total commitment, supreme affection, wholehearted obedience, and exclusive worship. It's all-encompassing that, that all of ourselves are to be given to God. So what we see in these verses as it relates to the Shema and as it relates to parenting this morning um, is I want to draw this point out, is that our ability to disciple and to teach the next, next generation the mighty acts of God must flow from a genuine relationship and a genuine and authentic relationship with the Lord ourselves. We cannot give our children what we do not have. Our relationship with God is, is of supreme importance. You cannot disciple your, ch- your children beyond your own discipleship. So if you're not faithful to meditate on Scripture daily, you will not be able to train your, train your children to do so. If you do not model a life of intimate prayer, you will not be able to teach your children how to pray. And if you never share the gospel outside of your homes, you will not be able to teach your children to share the gospel with their friends. Our ability to shape and influence our children to know the Lord is directly related um, to our own relationship with Christ. As parents, um, really, first and foremost, our most important relationship is our own relationship with the Lord. Putting our relationship with God is, is the greatest and most effective witness our children can have. So when our young people see us loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, they will be impacted by Christ um, through us more than any other way. Essentially, our children really, they pick up what is of supreme importance in our lives, don't they? Uh, we, we can't, you can't fake it. Uh, in our words, our actions, and our behaviors what we treasure will, will come to the surface for better or for worse. Um, we are models. We're models to our children of what it means to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So from Deuteronomy verses, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, we see that a parent's first priority must be a deep and abiding love for God where his word is joyfully embraced and treasured. Our children need to see a faith where the good news of Jesus is daily exalted in and daily spoke of. As parents, our, our role and our task before our children is to exhibit a vibrant faith in the Lord, a faith that has the Lord as of supreme value and worth, and that's our best witness to the Lord. So verses 46 give us that witness and f- encourage us to focus in that we can best disciple our children only when we ourselves have pressed in and, and seek the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Let's look at verses uh, 7 through 9 here. Verse 7 says, Impress them on your children, speaking of the commands that Moses was giving them. Moses says, Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. First thing I want to draw out here in these verses is that Moses, this, the, the word where it says impress them on your children, in other translations it has teach them diligently. 
Uh, the New Living Translation has kind of captures really the essence of this word in Hebrew. And the New Living Translation says this, repeat them again and again. This word carries a connotation of word to repeat day in and day out, a repetition of, of shaping our children. And that's the manner in which we are to teach them with not simply a one-time sharing of the gospel, but a repeating of every single day. And as we see, um, God commands us as parents to, to teach them when. When we sit and when we walk and when we lay down and when we rise up. These two polar opposites, these pairs that we see, is really a Hebrew way of saying that, that all-encompassing times and activities of our lives. There's no moment of the day or no time where we should not be explained to our children the importance of following the Lord. Uh, we are to comprehensively um, show them what it means to walk with Christ when they, when they get up for breakfast, when they go to bed at night, praying with them, teaching of the Lord. And so they, they really encompass every activity of our life. Now, what we see here is God's call. The parents are to be primary spiritual teachers in their child's life in verses 7 through 9. Now, I imagine this morning that most parents would acknowledge this, that the Bible calls them to spiritually nurture their children in the faith. But I think most parents are left with many questions. How am I to do this? One parent, you might say, um, how can I be the primary spiritual teacher in my child's life when, when I'm not a teacher, I've never been to Bible school. Uh, I'm not equipped like maybe the pastors of my church or, or who have went to Bible school. Maybe I should just rely on them and, and maybe just entrust them to teach because I, I can't teach. I don't know how to do that. I think many parents recognize that their responsibility, but they just feel hugely ill-equipped to uh, do anything about it. I think a big part of the problem lies in our understanding of what it means to teach. Um, we often think of teaching in the sense of a formal sense of the word. So here's what I mean in a formal sense of teaching. It's where students go to a classroom, they sit down and are taught from trained professional teachers on various subjects. So we, have the mi- we often have this mindset that this is what it means to teach, um, is, is the formal sense of the word teach. But there is an equally important, if not more influential, mode of teaching that is called informal teaching. Informal teaching encompasses um, the normal everyday activities and conversations that, that teach truths around us. Um, the, the daily things that our children are looking to us to learn, how we are interpreting the world, how we are helping them think through difficulties and problems. That type of teaching, I think, is being presented here um, by Moses this type of informal teaching. Let me give you an example. As a young father, I've just been amazed in how my children mimic everything I say and do, for good and, and sadly for bad. Um, I've seen that really they're like little sponges uh, who soak up everything my wife Suzanne and I do. Um, children, as you know as parents, children constantly look at us uh, and they absorb the ways that we think, the ways that we act, and ways that we respond to the world. So whether we fully acknowledge our role as teachers in our children's lives or not, we are 100% teachers nonetheless. Um, Our children look constantly to us to learn how to think or how to behave or how to interpret the world uh, around us. Now this truth can be pretty humbling um, and comforting at the same time. Uh, We have great power in our children's lives to shape them Uh, to help them see what it means to live in a world, what it means to love the Lord our God 
what it means to walk daily with him. And so, as parents, we really need to ask ourselves, what are the actions, behaviors, and words that we are teaching our children about God? Do we talk with our children about spiritual matters beyond Sundays? I believe every Christian deeply desires to help and assist their child in knowing the Lord, but we need to do more than just live a good and moral life before our children, teaching them to be nice and to share. Our children look to us to interpret the world around them. So how we respond to our world will shape the way that they think about their world. Let me give you an example of, of, how, uh, of this. It's, it's somewhat of a negative example, but it, it brings home the point of our powerful and profound influence on our children. I had, um, uh, years past, I had a student in my youth ministry um, whose mother had brain cancer. And so I was able to walk closely with this young person in the family through this you know, very difficult time. Um, one of the things that was hard for me is that this family um, had, a, had an approach to, to, to understanding this very um, you know, difficult news, this very hard time in their family's life. And that approach was to avoid it. And so rather than using this as an opportunity to um, point them to the hope that we have in the Lord, the parents just pretended like it just wasn't there. They actually even didn't tell their children uh, the real cause of what was going on in their life. So it was really hard for me to sit back and to see here it was an opportunity for um, a parent to be able to shape them, interpret how do I deal with suffering? How do I undergo the hardships and trials in life? How do I look to the Lord for my hope and strength? And they, they failed to do that, and it was hard. But what was very interesting is I uh, was able to talk with the mother's sister, and she said something pretty interesting she said, well, the way that, um, I'll use a different name, the way that Bonnie is responding to brain cancer is really the way that our mom responded to a similar disease in her life. She just pretended that it wasn't there, she said. And so I was just kind of like, wow, generation to generation is being passed on that to deal with the hard things in life is really just to avoid them, not to talk about them, not to look to the Lord um, to find the way that we need to think through and, and understand them. And so this was being passed on to their children as she was going through um, this difficult time of life. And so we have a really important opportunity as parents that we um, need to every day in all the actions um, help our children see how to interpret um, the hard things of life. We can point them to the Lord and point them how to think through, um, whether it be driving and somebody cuts you off or whether it be um, you know, how you deal with money, we can shape our children by teaching them the way that we should believe and think as a Christian. I want to look finally um, at my last point, is that what is the message and the manner of what we teach to our children? And I think verses 20 to 25 point to this. So if you see in Deuteronomy 6, 25, Moses gives us a hypothetical, hypothetical question that maybe your son or daughter will ask you. And he says this, in the future, when your son or daughter asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord your God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand before our eyes. The Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out of, of there to bring us in and to give us a land that he promised on oath to our fathers. This is a really awesome 
passage, I think, because there is going to come a day, and our children won't ask us the question like Moses brings it. They're not going to say, what are the stipulations and decrees of the laws the Lord your God commanded you? They'll say it a little differently, but it will be the same manner. They'll say, Mom, Dad, why, why do we choose to, to live differently than the people around us? Uh, why do we choose to use our money differently? Why do we choose not to, to go to these types of movies that my friends can go to? Um, why, do you, why do we choose to, to live in this manner and, and wake up early to go to church on Sundays? Our children are going to ask us in, in some manner or sense those type of questions. And that's where we have a unique opportunity to point them. And what does Moses say to point them to? He points them to the redemptive saving action of God. And at that time of day, in, in Moses' day, the, re, the redemptive act was what? God bringing them out of Egypt. Now, in our time, salvation history has progressed, and we see that what we should point them to is namely the, the saving work of Christ on the cross for us. So when our children ask, Mom, Dad, why, why do we choose to live differently? Why do we choose to act differently around those around us? We can say, son or daughter. The reason is that the God is, has set us free from the slavery of this world, so we don't live for Black Friday or to buy the latest things. We live for the Lord, and we've been set free from the bondage of self. We've been set free from from living for ourselves and we've been called into a new way of life to honor God and to glorify Him. And so we have a unique opportunity to to point our children uh, to the work of the Lord. One of the um, things in my study I found is is a quote by Charles Spurgeon that speaks in this passage. And I'd like to read it for you because it brings out another good point. Not only must we kind of convey to our children the specific truths and teachings of the gospel, but we need to also relate it to our own um, personal lives. And that's where it's really powerful. When we can say, you know what, I once struggled with, with drugs or, or selfishness or sin in this area of my life, but God has brought me out of that, and this is what he's doing. When we can tell our ch- children how personal it is for us, that's when it's very powerful. And this is what Charles Spurgeon captures here. He says this, Fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. I am sure that, in my early youth, no teaching ever had such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Neither can I conceive that, to any child, there can be one who will have such influence over the young heart as the mother who has so tenderly cared for her offspring. We should, be, we should especially tell our children of our own experience. Perhaps, my friend, there is no testimony that you can bear which would be so useful, so interesting, and so striking as a testimony of what you have yourself seen and handled of the word of life. Tell the gospel as you find it in the Bible, but set it in the frame of your own experience, of its preciousness. Tell your son or daughter how you sinned and how the Lord had mercy upon you. Tell him how he met with you, how you were brought to seek his face, how you were born again, how you received a new heart and a right spirit. He will think more of this great change because it happened to his father or to his mother or to some kind of friend. I like what Spurgeon is capturing here is that we need to not only help our children understand the specific truths of what God has done for us in the cross, but we need to frame it in the sense of how it's affected our life and make it personal and say, this is what the God has done for me. Uh, He has set me free, and I used to live this way, but God has brought me out of that. And let me teach you what God can do for you in your life. That is what our role is as parents, is to bring the gospel to bear on our children's life. 
In conclusion, I want to just share a few points of application from this text. From this text. Um, first off, it's clear from this passage of Scripture that God's Word must take the center place in our homes. If we are to be effective in reaching and helping our children know Christ and grow in the Lord, the Word of God must take highest priority in the life of our family. So what does this look like? In one sense, it's not really difficult at all, is it? Uh, Making God's word as the center of our family is is as simple as daily opening the scriptures and reading them together with your family. Ultimately, this really isn't the most difficult part. The real work and challenge is really lies within our hearts as parents. Do we believe, do we truly believe that God's word um, is our daily bread? Do we know that we can't live without it? Um, that is really the task that we have as parents, is, is cherishing God's word that, that we desire to open it up each day and read it to our families. Um, I shared in my candidating here uh, earlier this summer that I grew up in a, a pretty unhealthy, kind of dysfunctional home. My parents were Christians, but yet they didn't do the best to model kind of what a Christian life and the fruit of a Christian life was. But there's one thing that they did, and I'll always remember it because it had a profound influence in my life. When I was in elementary school, I can remember I had my own bedroom and my sisters had just next to me had their own bedroom. My parents would sit in the hallway between our two rooms and they would open up the scriptures and they would just read from them. And they did this for quite a few years. And I can just remember sitting there laying in my bed as I fell asleep listening to the word of God. Wow, you know, the word of God must have pretty strong importance. I don't remember exactly. They didn't explain it to me per se, but they read it. They opened the scriptures. And I believe that had a huge influence in my life to realize that this is a cherished word, it's a cherished uh, word that God has given, and I need to orient my life towards it. And so that's, that's what I learned by that example. And we have that same power in our lives. And I want to encourage all of us, all families, that, that the word of God be on our dining room t- table, that it would be opened daily, and that we would read from the scriptures of what God has done for us in Christ. The second um, area of application I just want to point us to is, is we need to be mindful of the enemy's tactics. Um, the enemy desires nothing more than to um, steal and remove God from our homes, um, to remove his word, to take away any type of spiritual conversation. Satan would like n- nothing more than really for our family to live as if God doesn't exist. I think one of the primary tools that, that Satan uses to really um, um, have us function as if the Lord isn't there is, is really something technology. Now, technology is certainly can be used as a very good tool. But I think in our world today, Satan uses technology as a conduit in which he wants to, to bring upon different values and things of our culture, whether it be through the Internet or through music or through, or through movies. And as parents, we need to be very weary of technology. Yes, uh, we should use technology. It's not bad or evil in itself. But we need to help our children to learn and understand how can we use technology for the glory of God. And I think often sometimes I see uh, many families, uh, a telephone or texting or video games or movies can get in the way of really families talking and spending time together. And so I struggle with this even in, in my family. It's so often to quickly just set our children in front of a TV show or watch a cartoon so we can get time. But, I'm, but what am I communicating to them that what is most important? And so we need to battle and not surrender and realize that really there's a cosmic battle for our children's hearts. And 
the world of technology is used by Satan um, to try to communicate different values and truths apart from that. And we need to monitor our children's use of technology. We need to make sure that they understand how they can use it for the glory of God. Um, so we need to train them in that manner. And then finally, we need to understand our role and really the limitations um, in leading our children to know the Lord. Inevitably, um, every parent is going to likely face uh, great sorrow and heartbreak over the choices of one or more children in our, in our homes. It's at these times that God really brings us at an end, brings us to an end in ourselves and reveals what's really all, always been true. We cannot change our children's hearts. No matter how hard we try or how badly we want it to take place, we cannot change the hearts of our children. Heart change is ultimately of the Lord. Because of this, ultimately, I believe our greatest work as parents is a work that's best done on our knees. It's the work of prayer, lifting our eyes up to heaven daily, crying out to the Lord um, for the protection, the guidance, and the salvation of our children. That is our greatest work as parents. It's in prayer that we acknowledge, really, we are humbly dependent upon the Lord to bring growth to the seeds of his word planted in the hearts of our children. Not only do we need to commit to the work of personal prayer on our own for our children, we need to teach our children how to pray. And we need to daily pray with them. Um, whether it be as we start our morning or our children falls down and scrapes their knee or when you're going to travel to somewhere or when, you f- or when your child is stressed out about a- a- upcoming tests or facing difficulty at home, these are really blessed opportunities that we can pause and with our child bow our heads and say, Lord, would you help my son or daughter in this opportunity? Would you heal them? Would you heal their boo-boo? Would you help them as they go to school? Would you remove the anxiousness and give them peace? There's just millions of opportunities in each day that we can take a moment to pray with our children. And in doing so, we will teach them that really we are dependent on the Lord and he is the one that we need to look to in life. I think if we opened our eyes, we'll see that there are countless opportunities for this each day to pray with our children. So when it comes down to it all, as parents, really ultimately we're simply instruments of God's grace in our child's lives. And really our task is to point them to their need of a Savior and to tell them of God's incredible love and grace and forgiveness that's freely offered to them in the gospel. Ultimately, parenting our children is a great privilege and honor, isn't it? A privilege that we must fully embrace and work at with all of our strength, heart, and soul by God's grace. Our task is that we may bring God's holy words to bear upon the hearts of our children, teaching them to love the Lord our God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and above all, treasuring before them the mighty acts of God, letting them see what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, soul. And so ultimately we need the Lord and we need to come to him in prayer and say, Lord, help us and cry out to him. And so let's do that now and pray that the Lord would give us grace that we need to... um, disciple and nurture our children in in the faith. Lord, thank you um, for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would, um, as as parents and the older generation, Lord, our greatest need is is a relationship with you, Lord, that we would grow and, and that you would inflame within us a passion to know you, to grow in your word. Lord, you've given us a great task, but Lord, it is really your work. So we, may we diligently seek you in prayer and asking for your work in our children's hearts and lives. 
And may we be just simply instruments and vessels to be used by you to communicate your great and saving works of salvation and redemption in the scriptures and in our own lives. Thank you for this task you've given us. We are just humbled and privileged to be able to disciple our children. Help us to do it well. Help us to look to the church and the local body of believers to partner with that we may um, effectively reach our children for the Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.